<clears throat> ask this in your name, we pray. Amen. Um, can I just confess to you today? <laughs> Are you, you don't even know what you're, you're saying sure to. <laughs> but I, I, I want to confess to you today that um, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Quote, unquote. Now, this may not come as a surprise to some of you. <laughs> Absolutely, this may not be a new revelation to many of you, or if you're, you are new around here, you will soon learn. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Actually, I, there was a conversation I had with uh, my district superintendent. Um, so if you're new to the Church of Nazarene, um, he would be my boss, and yes, I can be fired. Um, <clears throat> thankfully, I haven't been. Um, but uh, about two or three years ago, I think it was about three years ago, I was still fresh here. Uh, I was at a Global Leadership Summit, and we were drinking from the fire hose of leadership, and it was on a break. And uh, I, I got in conversation with, with Jeff, my district superintendent, and, and uh, he was just complimenting um, me and complimenting you and the things that were happening in you and through you. And then I said what you should never ever say to your boss, and I don't recommend it, um, but I said, Jeff, I have no idea what I'm doing. I really don't. I said, when I started, I had no clue, and I still don't have any clue, and I just declare to you today, six years later, um, I don't have any clue. I don't know what I'm doing. And reflecting on my life, I feel like that, that's kind of the story of my life. Um, stepping out of college, which is, was the easiest time, and I don't know why there's safe places in college, because college is the safe space. Um, it is the easiest time in life, I think. Um, but stepping out of college into the real world, quote-unquote, um, into a, a position as a child and adolescent case manager and then, then a juvenile probation officer. I had an, a knowledge base, but I did not have experience. So I was stepping into the unknown, and I didn't know what I was doing. And there were many times in my life that, that I even stepped away from the unknown because I didn't know what I was doing, and I had no grasp or clue. Going beyond that, I stepped into a job that... Um, was a created position. It was a newly created position. Uh, there were really not too many job or duties that were listed. It was a chaplain at a, a junior high and high school. And I stepped in as the chaplain, the Bible teacher, the mission coordinator. Um, the list goes on. And I, I took the a pay cut, a, a food stamps eligible pay cut to go into that job. And I had no clue. I wasn't a teacher. Uh, how I had to find curriculum, I had to sort through curriculum, um, I had to actually teach the curriculum, I had to write tests, I had to write quizzes, I actually had to grade those tests and those quizzes, I actually had to grade papers, and my grammar ain't that good. Um, and so, like, and who in the world, why would I be teaching anyone Old Testament, having failed Old Testament in the easiest time of my life in college? <clears throat> Who was I? At, in my 30s, I stepped into Medicare insurance. What do I know about Medicare insurance in my 30s? I had no clue. Stepping into the unknown, stepping into the uncertainty, not knowing what I was doing. And then I get the call 
to come here to be interviewed. Folks, call me off the bench. I'm great. Hire me as a team captain. We're never going to make it to the playoffs. I confess to you, I don't know what I'm doing. But I, I want to free all of us. I want to free you. I want to free myself. By declaring to you, I don't think any one of us have it all figured out. I don't think any one of us in this room have it all figured out. But see, I think that's where it's exciting. I think that's where the joy comes into play. I think that's where the risk comes into the play. Because when you don't have it all figured out, there's this discovery that ensues. This excitement of stepping into the tension, stepping into the unknown, and discovering new things. See, it was just a little bit over six years ago that we stepped into the unknown, not having it all figured out. And as I've learned that when you step into the unknown, that, that discovery awaits, that's where the goodness happens. Because quite frankly, that's when you start to learn things about you. You learn things about the people that you're with. Because quite frankly, when you just step into the unknown and discover what awaits you, you begin to realize that success itself is the enemy of success. Failure is where you learn the most. And when you step into the unknown, there is that opportunity for failure, for the floor to come out from under your feet. But when you step into the unknown with that opportunity of failure, that's when discovery and joy and excitement happens. And, and for, for myself, and quite frankly, I think many of us in here, um, we need to have the ability to fail. We need that ability to fail. Greater understanding comes in the moments where you deem your greatest failures. And so six years ago, we stepped in. I stepped in, not knowing what was going to happen. You stepped in as well. It was kind of a contracted relationship, right? Now it's not a contracted relationship. It's just friendship. It's blessing, right? So six years ago, we step in, almost six years, we step, step into this, this thing and not having it all figured out in this organism called Wapak Nas because it really is an organism. This is an organism. Why do I call it an organism? Because it is living and breathing. You are living and breathing. Church is not a place you go to. Church is who you are. Church is what you are. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by your works. And we're all on mission together. 
to change the world around us in the name of Jesus Christ so that other people can come into life with Jesus Christ. We are an organism. We are the body. A body is a living organism. And folks, we are alive. We live in the abundance and the fullness of Jesus Christ. We live and breathe mercy and grace and humility and forgiveness and love. We're a living organism. It's not a building. It is a group of people saved by grace. And so this living and breathing organism, over the past about six years, I say six years, but we're, we're a little bit shy of that. Come October, it'll be six years. We, as an organism, began to discover some things about who we are, and we, we kind of decoded our DNA. It was really interesting to decode it and realize that this organism that has been established since 1926 actually had some, some very significant fibers within its DNA. And they, what we call our values. Unconditional love. Family. Second chances. Celebration. Service. Prayer. And you. And folks, these are values, but honestly, quite frankly, you cannot value something in which you do not practice. Values are practiced. If you value it, it it will come through you, and you will live it out. And so these are things that we hold on to, and we want you to hold on to as well. But not, not merely hold on to it. We want to hold you to it. And we discovered that our DNA, that this is what has built this congregation over the almost last century. We're almost 100 years old. And then we found that these hills in which we die on, these values, they, they really build who we are as this organism, as these living stones Loved people loving people to Jesus. People who have experienced the transformational love of God in their life. Who now go out and give that life transformational love to other people. It literally is an endless cycle of giving and receiving love and life. Because our hope is that once that life transformational love that happens in you by the love of God and you receive it and you give your life over to Christ, that you now go and extend that to other people and that they will come to life in Christ. That they will give their lives over to Him for receiving His life in them. And it's just this endless cycle. This is what we want to see happen. And so... It's been over the course of the last nine months that I myself and and Matthew and I I would even include um, Paul in this is that we've discovered some new things about this living organism that we call life, Wapakaz. See, in the, the last two and a half years, I've been a part of a peer learning group of pastors um, coordinated by Andy Monin from the Valley. Um, he pulled in many pastors from our district and some from outside of our district. 
Um, because the central purpose is that when the leader gets better, everybody gets better. And so what we do is we come together once every six months for, for two days. And we sharpen each other. We challenge each other. We push each other into the hard areas of our life as well as the hard areas of ministry. And we call it the gasoline peer group because we really want to pour gasoline on the ministries that we shepherd and that we pastor. We talk about our ministry. We talk about the tough times. We push each other into the hard conversations. And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we sharpen each other, is we, we read books prior to coming together. And then we discuss them and how they've challenged us. And, and one of those books that, that I read that I came in contact with was this book called Gaining by Losing. Why the Sending Church is the, the, the Future Church. And many of you have heard me reference this. Actually, our last series, some of that came right out of that book. We are, we are, li- we are, are given life to, to be living a sent life. When you come into Jesus Christ, you were sent, right? And so I read this book and we discussed this book and I thought this book was so impactful that I actually recommended it to our, our pastoral development team on our district. And I learned very quickly that if you recommend or critique something, you better be willing to step in and facilitate that discussion. Shouldn't that be the way anyways? If you're willing to critique, if you're willing to come in and step in and say, hey, this needs to change, we should be the ones that are willing to change it. We should be the ones that provide the resolution or even the hands and feet into that resolution, right? And so the second time in reading this book, yes, I did read a book twice. Um, I know that's a shocker, right? In the second time of reading this book, as the author unpacks their own bumpy road, their own bumpy journey of failures and successes, their discoveries, understanding that they are are placed in their city to bless and bring joy to their city, and that, quite frankly, the church should be ascending church. He begins to unpack these things called plumb lines. And I began to discover that we, in fact, this living organism of Wapaknaz, have plumb lines. We have these directional markers that come out of us. Well, and, and I just, I really didn't know what a plumb line was, so I actually had to Google it. Because Google knows everything, right? It is omniscient, maybe, I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> It knows everything. So I, I, Google, I Google plumb lines and, and really what a plumb line is. And please, for those of you in construction, please correct me later on. I may be completely wrong. But uh, the plumb line, basically there's a plumb. There's a weight on the end of a string. And it uses the gravitational pull to make sure that walls, ceilings are all even and perpendicular Am I close? Yeah. This is an ancient method. It's a very simple method, right? It makes sure things are even and straight and perpendicular. Moving in the right... They're directional markers. And so, as Greer started to talk about these directional markers, these plumb lines in his church, I realized, man, we have plumb lines in our own church. 
our organism has these plumb lines that, that kind of have emerged. So I said, Matthew, he and I had a conversation. He said, hey, I'm reading this book, and he was kind of in this pot as well. I said, I think we have some plumb lines in our, in our church that have come out. I said, what do you think some of those are? And he started to list a few. And I said, here's some what I think they are. I said, here's the challenge. Over the next several months, and so this was late winter, early spring. I said, for the next several months, listen to what I say and listen to what you say, and let's listen to the voice of our congregation. And let's see what comes out of the congregation, what you guys bring out. And it's really interesting what we found. Uh, I actually put out a net a couple weeks ago just to see, hey, what do you guys think some of our plumb lines are? What are some repeated phrases that seep into us that begin to eventually come out of us? And here's a few, which I found one very hilarious. And I will tell it to you right now because it's 1125 and you're probably sleepy and you're ready to go. Don't worry about your lunch. We're almost done. <laughs> Apparently I say that a lot, right? Um, someone else said, uh, poopy goes in, poopy goes out. I thought, well, yeah, I say that a lot. <laughs> Other folks have said, love people loving people to Jesus, which is our mission statement. And I hope, I hope you that have been here for a short time see that and hear that. And I hope those of you that have been here for a long time, if somebody asked you, who is Wapak Naz? What are you about? That's the first thing you say. We are loved people loving people to Jesus. It's on our wall, for crying out loud. It's on the mirrors. Um, somebody else said the altar is always open. We meet people where they are. All are called to be sent. Everyone plays in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. And then apparently I found out that I say, uh, that's awesome, I love that, a lot. Plumb lines. Um, in fact, I showed you a plumb line a few weeks ago with somebody actually putting it on a canvas. Salt, light, and yeast. Folks, plumb lines, they seep into our minds. They seep into us. In fact, every single one of you that sits in this room and listening to my voice, including myself, you have these directional markers in the labyrinth of your memory. You have the voices of your youth and your childhood, of your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, influential people in your life, not so influential people in your life. I still remember being outside soccer camp. I, was, I, I had just come out of the field. I asked to come out of the field. I was young. I was young. It was at soccer camp. And I still remember the conversation, the statement that one of the coaches that were there, he said, I would never want you on my team. 
if you're going to continue to come ask to get out of the field, I never want you on my team. Plumb line, directional marker. They echo in your, in your mind. Some of them good, <laughs> some of them not so good, right? They become filters in our life. So, you know, one of the best opening lines in a book that I've ever read comes from Jim Collins, from Good to Great. And the, the opening line of his book was, the enemy of good is the enemy of great. Or the enemy of good is uh, The enemy of great is good. See if I can get that right. The enemy of great is good. But the, the best line that I've heard within the book, within a book, is language creates culture. Language creates culture. Think about it. I still remember, I was in junior high, I still remember what that guy said to me. But I still remember some of the good things that people told me too. Language creates culture. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew, he knew that when he was saying, what we say comes out of the overflow of our mouths. Out of over the flow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He understood that. Language creates culture. Out of the overflow of your heart, you speak. Paul picked up on this. He said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. Language creates culture. You can either build or you can destroy with your language, with your tongue. Um, James, the bro James of Jesus, out of this, the book of the same name, not bro James, but James, um, he said this. We'll take ships for an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue, your mouth, is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also, also is a fire. Language creates culture. What you say has power. What you think has power, because what you think, you eventually, you say out of what you think. Your heart, folks, your mouth is a heart issue. Our mouths are heart issues. However you want to slice it, cut it, or justify it, our mouth is a heart issue. Language creates culture. You've got to ask yourself, what kind of culture am I creating with my mouth? Whether with my kids, with myself, in here. What culture am I creating in my own mind? Language creates culture. And so these plumb lines have kind of surfaced. And I was curious, what are those plumb lines? What culture are we creating with the things that we are saying? Right here in this organization, this organism, I should say. And so this series, um, this series is about the plumb lines. This discovery, this stepping into the unknown and discovering things about us that we really didn't know before. 
And I challenge you to go on a discovery for yourself. Because this isn't really just about Wapaknaz. This is also about you. What are the plumb lines in your life? What are those statements that echo in you? That as a result of them, you choose to do A or B, or you choose not to do A or B, or you choose to just be indifferent and not choose a side, or choose an action. You have plumb lines, whether you are 84 or 44 or 24 or 14. You have plumb lines, directional markers in your life. And it's about time that we gauge them. We figure out what they are. Because some of those directional markers are all lies. I have to fight that voice. I had to fight that voice. I don't want you on my team. I had to fight that voice. Sometimes I still have to fight that voice. So, today, we're going to find out one of our directional markers, one of our plumb lines. Embrace the awkward. I had no idea that this was, this was a plumb line. I had no idea this was a repeated phrase that kept coming up, primarily on Sunday mornings. But this has become one of those phrases that we repeat. And actually, I found myself saying it the other day, yesterday, at Winans. Somebody apologized for something that spilled on the floor. I said, don't worry, we embrace the awkward. It's all good. Have you ever realized awkward, the word awkward, is actually really awkward? I mean, if you look at the K, it's surrounded by W's, flanked by, by A's, and it's an erd on the end. It's awkward. Awkward, what is it? What is this word? Um, it's, it means it's lacking skill, dexterity. Um, like many non-athletes in athletic situations, lacking skill and dexterity, um, lacking social graces and manners. But then, this is where it hit. Awkward, lacking grace, requiring caution, hard to deal with, difficult. Hazardous. That's awkward. I don't know how many awkward situations you've been in, but I actually try to create them. I try to create awkward situations for people and myself because they're entertaining, for one. At least for me, I don't embarrass easily. Embrace the awkward. Lacking grace. Think about this for a second. Lacking grace. Not having grace. Requiring caution. You or someone you know may require caution in interacting with you 
or someone else. You're hard to deal with. Maybe you got somebody in your life that's hard to deal with. Maybe it's your pastor that's hard to deal with. Um, somewhat hazardous. You know what? Jesus himself, of anyone in history, I think he probably had the most, most awkward situations they had to deal with. Matthew, not our Matthew, although sometimes that's embracing the awkward as well. Those dad jokes, dude. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Matthew, the tax collector, the ancient IRS, who would actually have his own category, tax collector. He wouldn't fall into the category of sinner. He would fall into the category of tax collector, who would actually line his own pockets from the people that are his own. And he's in bed with Rome. Zacchaeus, he's the chief tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He's like the management team of the ancient IRS. The leper that Jesus reached out and touched, who was on the outskirts of town, who was marginalized and forgotten, left on his own, because everybody was worried about themselves, protecting themselves, and not dealing with that situation. Jesus himself reached out and touched the leper and made him clean and healed him. How about the adulterous woman? John chapter 8, a woman that was literally caught in the act, the sexual act of adultery. Pulled into a Sunday morning, folks. Pulled into a sermon. Being judged and finger-pointed in the moment. You talk about an awkward situation. Over and over and over in the Gospels. Just read the book of Mark. The first five chapters. Jesus is in so many awkward situations. Simon the Zealot, one of his own, an insurrectionist. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the Zealot, the insurrectionist, these are two people that don't get along. In fact, Simon the Zealot is one that would kill Matthew the tax collector. How about James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, who actually had to ask their mommy to go do their bidding for them to see if Jesus would allow them to sit at the right and left hand of of him. How about Judas Iscariot? The money holder, the betrayer. That awkward situation when Jesus is in the garden and here comes Judas, one of his own, one of his inner circle, to betray him, to turn him over and kisses him on the cheek. That's an awkward situation. That is a situation needing grace. That is a hazardous situation. It requires caution. But Jesus embraced the awkward. How about Barabbas? Another insurrectionist and murderer in chains being released. And Jesus 
going in his place. How about Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the prefect, washing his own hands at this whole situation, who had the power to release Jesus? Awkward. How about the two criminals that Jesus was raised up next to, standing in the middle of, and in the middle of his dying moments, one of them mocks Jesus. And the other one says, hey, don't you fear God? Jesus, embracing the awkward, says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Of all the people in history, Jesus was the one that had to embrace the awkward frequently. Situations that lack grace. That required caution. That were hazardous to himself and to his crew and to everyone else. People that were so hard to deal with, that were difficult. Jesus embraced the awkward. And so, it was nearing the end of his time, his ministry. And as Jesus and his disciples found themselves in a large crowd, this crowd was filled with tax collectors and sinners and the religious elite, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It was as if the, the Democratic, Republic, or Democratic Convention and the Republican Convention, the GOP, all were on the same street and they let out at the same time and they all converged in the same spot. Yeah, that was the moment right here. And Jesus, not being pro-party, but being pro-humanity, begins to lay out three parables. One leading into the other, to the last one. The first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. One sheep out of a hundred lost. And so the shepherd goes, finds the sheep, brings it back, and they celebrate now that they have come back together as whole. A woman loses her coin. One of ten. She turns her house upside down. And she finally finds it, calls her friends and said, hey, I found my coin, let's celebrate. And in that moment, Jesus has the whole crowd, the DNC and the GOP together. Because everybody's lost something and everybody's found something and everybody's celebrated something. And then he turns tables. And he tells the parable of what we understand if you've been around church for a very long time, the parable of the prodigal son. If you've not been around, I prefer to call it a parable of grace. A parable of two sons, a wasteful son and an ungrateful son. And so Jesus turns tables, and he gets really, really personal. He's got both the GOP and the the DNC, all on the same page, agreeing, nodding their heads at the same time. How is that possible? Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and the religious elite, going, yeah. A father has two sons. Most often, pastors will start with the, 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 the younger son, but we've got to remember the older son. The older son, the ungrateful son. He's the son that's been doing it all along. He's been working for dad. He's been working the farm. And honestly, I think he's working more for dad's approval than anything else. 
not really working the farm at all. He's trying to work his dad over. Just kind of like his younger brother, the younger son. And one day the younger son comes to dad and says, Dad, let's pretend you're dead. I want my inheritance. And it would be unheard of. But the father agrees and liquidates a part of the property, part of the estate, which actually pulls from the older brother. No wonder he's a little miffed. And so the younger son becomes the wasteful son, the hateful son, because he would rather his father be dead and have the inheritance. And so he goes to a foreign land, to a people that are not his own, to a land not his own, and he literally scatters all he was given. Parties and prostitutes. Let's just call it for what it is. And it's almost simultaneous. Jesus is is just... Great storyteller. Almost simultaneously, as he has squandered his last dime, there's famine in the land. What to do? I'm far from home. So the hateful and wasteful son sells himself as a hired hand to a foreign man. And the foreign man puts him out to the field attend to the swine and the sty. As the hateful and wasteful son's stomach is gurgling, empty, just wanting the pods that he's feeding the pigs, he finds himself in the pile. Humiliated. Have you ever noticed that sometimes what may be an awkward situation for you is embarrassing for the other? He's humiliated and he's in the sty. And and Luke says, when he came to his senses, he had a realization that I can go and hire myself to my father and be one of his hired hands because they eat better than I. And so he gets up out of the muck, out of the literal filth and dung. And he begins his long journey home. processes what am I going to say what am I going to say what am I going to say comes up with a speech but see all along see we come to this point in the story where we see that there's the father who's on the porch and we kind of have this this image that this was the only day that he was on the porch that father's been on the porch every day since the son had left Watching, waiting, scanning the horizon for any glimmer of that hateful, wasteful son. He's still his son. The father still loves him, regardless how hateful and wasteful he was. And there's this one day, 
the dust is kicking up in the distance, in the horizon. And he sees them. What does the father do? Stands on the porch like this, arms folded. No. No. Still, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. Jesus embraced the awkward all the time. And even shared a parable, a story, of what that looks like, what that is. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. Through his arms around him and kissed him. Awkward. Lacking grace. Requiring caution. Hard to deal with. Difficult. Hazardous. Embrace the awkward. Jesus told a parable about embracing the awkward. When there's a lack of grace, you extend the grace. Regardless of the filth, or regardless of the decision, your arms are thrown around them. The story continues. He ran to the sun, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The dot, dot, dot is the interruption. The son tries to get out his speech, but the father interrupts him, doesn't let him get any further. He said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine, this son of mine who wanted me dead, the son of mine, was dead. Whoa. Just didn't catch that. It's the first time I caught that. For this son of mine was dead. Not the father. Not the way the son wanted the father. Hey, dad, let's pretend you're dead and give me the inheritance, the estate that I would have when you were dead. The father says, no, for this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. So let's begin to celebrate. They they celebrated. Folks, embrace the awkward. What does it mean? What does it look like? What may require caution? What may be hazardous? What may be hard hard and difficult to deal with? We throw caution to the wind. And we go under the yellow tape. And we step into the awkward. We deal with it. Hard situations, unforgiveness, we step into it. Bitterness and resentment, 
we step into it. We step into those situations that are so hard and so nerve-wracking, that are so tension-filled. We step into it. Whether it's with ourselves or with someone else, we step into it. We go with the flow, especially when technology does not help us at all on Sunday mornings. It isn't a Sunday at Wapak Naz unless something technologically goes wrong. We embrace the awkward. We ask for help. That's a curse word here, right? It's four letters, I know. But we ask for help. It's no longer a DIY situation. We ask for help. We try, we fail, we try again, but after learning from our failure, we keep going. We go into places that no one will go. We eat with everyone, kings and queens and the marginalized and the forgotten. We eat with everyone. We introduce guests to others to remove the awkward. Because I can tell you what, anyone that's stepping in these walls on a Sunday morning that has never stepped into these walls on a Sunday morning, they are taking a risk. Whether they're new here or not. We embrace the awkward. We break down the walls. We have hard conversations with people rather than being critical and gossiping about them behind their backs or publicly. When things don't turn out excellent, we embrace the awkward. But it doesn't get us, give us a get-out-of-excellence free card. We do our best. We speak truth and do it with gentleness and compassion and love. Folks, Jesus Christ himself embraced the awkward in you. Think about it for just one moment. He stepped into your situation in your life while we were sinners. He still loved us. Jesus Christ is the true prodigal who walked across the cosmos, left his home, came to a foreign land, wrapped himself in flesh, And then he returned home and he's coming back again, right? He's the true prodigal. That parable points to him. Folks, Jesus embraced the awkward in you. Now we go embrace the awkward in other people and in other situations. And we bring it grace. We throw caution to the wind. And we step into it. And for those of you that are sitting here that have never, ever received Jesus in your life, you've had questions, you've had doubts, your life circumstances, they hadn't all added up the way you wanted them. Jesus is ready to embrace that in you. Would you please stand? Just bow your heads for one moment. Again, don't worry, your lunch will be there. We're almost done. Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray for this group of people, those that are listening on the podcast or online. 
Pray for myself, Lord God. There are things in my life that that are awkward, that I need to embrace, that I need to deal with and step into. And I think that's the case for all of us. We may not all have it figured out, and that's okay. There's discovery that awaits. There's newness that awaits. There's excitement and joy that awaits. Father, may we be a people. May this living organism, this group of living stones that we call Wapak Naz, may it not be done out of obligation, Lord God. May we live out of the love that you've given us and may we step into those awkward situations that are uncomfortable for us and may be embarrassing for someone else, but there is someone that truly needs the love of Jesus Christ and their life that you have. So Father, may we be a people that embraces the awkward. Whatever that looks like. May that be a directional marker for our life. I love you, Father. I thank you. It's in your name that we pray today, Jesus. Amen. Folks, may you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Please love your neighbor as yourself, and as you do that, embrace the awkward. Have a good day.